How is Gen AI impacting the tax function? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. The best way I can analogize, if you think back to 30 years ago with spreadsheets, at that point in time, most tax planning and processes were done with a pencil, paper, and a calculator. But everyone thought that was going to remove the need for tax professionals. The reality is that they learned how to code spreadsheets, they learned how to build better business insights, more scenarios, and years and years later, there's more tax jobs than ever. And so we see AI as having the same impact. Learn more at EY.com. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, we've had a busy few months. <sighs> yeah, we really did. We were all over. We crisscrossed the country. We did all three coasts, uh, East Coast, California, the, the third coast, Texas. Uh, we went to California twice yep. in about three weeks, I think. And But we have a nice little break now. Yes, uh, I, for one, am grateful uh, to not be living out of a suitcase for a while. But our last uh, stop in the Whirlwind America tour was in Las Vegas. Oh, that was so fun. I loved going to Vegas. Uh, I really <laughs> loved you. I, I love Vegas. It was so cool that I got the opportunity to join you in Las Vegas. Okay, listeners, uh, <laughs> this is where we're going to get into a little bit of an argument. Because you're going you're gonna to hear Odd Lodge co-host air some dirty laundry. The day before, no, the day he was supposed to actually fly out to Las Vegas, Joe changed his mind. <sighs> You decided exactly Vegas isn't for you. So, listeners, I love Vegas. It's one of my favorite cities in the country. I like playing poker. I love the strip. I love the lights. I love the water consumption in the desert. <laughs> I was really excited. And then I got to the airport on this really nice He wasn't feeling fall day. it. No, it's not true. I got to the airport on this really nice fall day. And about 30 minutes after I got to the airport, my flight was pushed back about five hours. And I was only going to be in Vegas for 24 hours as it was. And I wasn't even sure that the flight was going to take off when they said, because actually it was the second delay at the time. And I did have family in town, which is also true. And Tracy was already out there. And Tracy is a very capable co-host, more than capable co-host. Sounds than like capable. a lot of excuse, Joe. <laughs> and I said, please, Tracy, can you just do this? Can you just do me a solid and do this episode by yourself? And Tracy, without any complaint <laughs> or frustration. Well, at the time, I didn't complain. And, I complained when I came and back. no making me feel bad about myself uh, obliged. Let me just say, the world's smallest microscope would not be able to locate my sympathy for this <laughs> argument. You know what? No, okay. Let's leave you know, it there. I just... I, never... Okay. Listeners, uh, let me say, though, that you are in for a treat, as is Joe, because he wasn't there. So this is the first time he's going to hear this interview. But we spoke, or I spoke, with Michael Sue, the acting comptroller of The Currency. And we had a really interesting conversation. This was a live episode recorded on stage at Money 2020, which you might know as the big sort of fintech gathering. And we talked a lot about the intersection between banking and technology. And 
And Joe, here's where it gets kind of odd lotsy, because Michael has been arguing for a while that a lot of what's happening in banking right now, and particularly in payments, mm. kind of looks like a supply chain. So a lot of banks are outsourcing different functions like payments to third-party vendors, and this presents a bunch of new and interesting uh, problems and risks and I guess also opportunities. It's so interesting to think about finance in this realm. And you can imagine how these things go in cycles because you could imagine at some point these functions were very simple. It was all in-house, vertically, horizontally integrated and so forth. And then like many other areas of the economy, companies realize, okay, wait, what if we have one specialty? Other companies then specialize in this specific thing. I remember we did that episode about community banks and how they had to outsource a lot of their own functions about cybersecurity and so forth because they don't have maybe the capacity of a JP Morgan. So it is interesting to think about like the supply chain of money in that respect. Well, this is exactly it. So in one respect, it's a sort of natural evolution of the economy. Everyone becomes more specialized. Everyone becomes more efficient. The business model becomes more streamlined. But as Michael points out, there are these sort of new problems that are potentially thrown up by everyone outsourcing kind of critical functions in some respects. So without further ado, uh, take a listen to this live episode with Michael Sue recorded in Las Vegas, sans Joe, at <laughs> Money 2020. Michael Sue, Acting Controller of the OCC, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Tracy, thanks so much for having me. Uh, uh, love the show, and it's a real honor to be here. Oh, I appreciate that. So I'm sort of in a reflective mood lately, and I used to be a banking correspondent. I covered a lot of fintech back when people were super excited about it. I feel like they're not as excited about it anymore. Um, this is a really embarrassing first question. What does the OCC do? Ah. And like, how does it compare? I feel like there are so many different banking regulators. How much time do we have? Yeah. Well, there's the FDIC, <laughs> there's the Fed, there's the OCC. Who's doing what? Yeah. How often do you step on each other's toes? Uh, <laughs> we coordinate a lot. Let me put it that way. So the OCC regulates and supervises nationally chartered banks and federal savings associations. So just to put some numbers on that, it's about 1,100 banks. Wow. Okay. Now we've got 40, we got over 4,000 banks in the banking system. But by assets, the largest banks tend to be nationally chartered. Mm-hmm. You know, the, your, your JP Morgan Chases and your cities of the world. So by assets, OC, the OCC supervises and regulates about two thirds of the banking assets. Oh, got it. In the system, right? So you'll get a little bit of that 80-20 rule uh, for nationally chartered banks. Banks can have state charters and they can be members or not members of the Federal Reserve. So we have a complicated Actually, your listeners might be interested in this, but maybe we'll spare them. For this. No, our listeners love detail. Uh, so it, it, there's, a, there's a different kind of landscape, but we, we, we coordinate quite a bit at the federal level mm-hmm. on all the major rulemakings because we want a level system. Mm. Uh, we want a level banking system. Now, I think what's really interesting about the OCC is historically, so we were founded in 1863 during the Civil War. Wow. And before the OCC, you had free banking. And this is relevant for stable coins. Right. Because that system. But they all issued their own currency. Yes. yes, I remember this. Right. So every you had the Bank of Tracy and you had the Bank of Mike and the Bank of Joe, and each bank would issue its own dollar. Mm. Different size, different color, but it would be a dollar. And so people were walking around with all these different these different notes. And in theory, they could go back to the Bank of Tracy and say, I want 
a dollar's worth of gold, right? Specie. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you had it and sometimes you didn't. Right. And so there would be discount rates on these dollars. That's right. And so it was a mess. And you imagine like there's panics all the time. There's a lot of uh, fraud and there were money men. People would walk, go around with bags full of money from town to town to exchange these dollars. Mm. Because, you know, if you're a farmer, you want to be able to, to do your business. So during the Civil War, Sam and Chase are like, hey, we got to fund the war. <laughs> And we got to bring the union together. So mm. they've got, they passed a series of laws. They've got now a greenback, unified dollar, mm. and they create national banks to basically both issue those and then take deposits and basically buy treasury bonds, mm. which funds the war. That's crazy. So the OCC was around even before the Fed? Yes, yes, oh. way before. So you have one up on them. So, <laughs> well, and all we do is supervision. Mm. It's a, we are a very supervisory focused uh, agency. And so we've got a long, deep history. Um, and, you know, the stablecoin debates, you know, this is less relevant now, but a lot of times folks are saying, well, why don't we want more, don't we want stablecoins? And it's like the stablecoin landscape now looks a lot like free banking because each of these issuers is different and they trade differently. I mean, if you go on to and you look these things up and it's not a long term sustainable system. Hmm. Well, since we're on the topic of stablecoins, as our Bloomberg opinion columnist Matt Levine says, often, it does seem like a lot of crypto and, and maybe some aspects of fintech are learning the lessons of the financial system development sort of in real time. Um, and on the topic of stable coins, you know, we did have a big collapse last year uh, with Terra Luna. You at the OCC have always taken a sort of cautious approach to stable coins. What was it that kind of worried you about their development? What was it that you saw that made you think, wait a second. And in some respects, it's kind of surprising because stable coins were supposed to be the safest right. aspect of the crypto right. system and then turned out to be very problematic. Although I guess you can say that about a lot of financial history, the safest assets often turn out to be the problematic ones. But yes. what was it that made you take that cautious approach? So if we back up a little bit mm -hmm. and you know, just the rise of crypto. So I, I, I became acting comptroller in May of 2021. Mm -hmm. And that year alone, crypto was just on a that rocket. was a big that was year, a big year yeah. of growth for crypto in general and stablecoins, and so there's a lot of hype, a lot of FOMO, and it felt familiar to me because it felt a lot like derivatives hmm. and structured finance, circa 2004, 2006. Right, you pool all this stuff and then you trade it as well, like one for one. And so there's you know, Jillian Ted got this great book, Fool's Gold, mm -hmm. and I recommend it to everybody because chapter one, innovation. Chapter two, perversion. Chapter three, crisis. Mm. And so this cycle happens over, the first innovations for credit default swaps were really, really good. Right. They solved problems, it was amazing, it's great. And then people are just innovating for innovation's sake, and then you have the high priests. Mm. Who understands this? Oh, only the PhDs with, you know, uh, who understand you know, nuclear physics can actually explain this stuff. Mm. And that leads to, it creates an environment where it can just kind of eat itself. And so mm -hmm. I, I, had a, I had a feeling within crypto, maybe that's what's happening. And so of course, I think we do what we do best in government. We dig in, mm -hmm. what are the facts? Let's like crack the thing open, try to understand this best we can. And the more we looked, the more worrying signs of like, hmm, this is not all it's cracked up to be. And especially with stable coins, there was a big gap between uh, the talk and the reality. Mm -hmm. And so that just sets a whole bunch of flags up and so, yeah, you're trying to telegraph very clearly to banks, like, look, if you're going to get into crypto, it's got to be safe, sound, and fair. Do your homework. Mm. 
you know, make sure you have those controls in place. And so for the banks that were, you know, like I call them crypto curious, and there were a lot at the time, <laughs> they lost interest because I think they recognized, oh, that, that takes an awful lot of work. And then once the crypto winter happened, you know, a lot of that, there was a big pullback from that. Right. Well, the one other thing I want to ask is, stablecoins aside, mm. um, you know, we, we did see a little bit of contagion from the crypto turmoil of 2022 into the banking system. So notably, we saw Silvergate um, right. collapse. Right. And I guess we can debate how much of that was due to pure crypto or other dynamics with deposit outflows and things like that. But does it feel to you, looking at the U.S. banking landscape now in 2023, that there's enough of a barrier between regulated banks and crypto? There's enough of a, a sort of insulation there? Yeah. So um, I'm going to knock on, I'm not sure if this is wood. I'm going to knock yeah. on it. Uh, Our producer, Carmen, is going to kill you for, uh, for <laughs> making ambient noise during the podcast. Uh, the short answer is, I think so. And that's in part because across all the federal banking agencies, we've been very clear and unified about how we feel and what our expectations are about banks engaging in risky activities such as crypto. And we've listed those risks out. You know, we've provided interagency guidance. Again, it's not to say that banks can't do it, mm -hmm. but if a bank is going to do it, whatever the it is, it's got to be safe, sound, and fair, and they have to prove that to us. We feel that that's very appropriate given what's taking place uh, in the crypto space. Again, if you go back I think the stats are about a billion dollars of fraud, $2 billion of scams, and $3 billion of hacks last mm. year. Like that's, that's a risky space. That's not to say everybody's bad, because that's not true. There are good players in that space, but it's a risky space. And so we expect banks to, to do that work. Um, and I think most banks, either they're doing that work or they're decided it's just not really worth it. Hmm. So crypto is by no means a monolith. And even though you've taken a cautious approach to stablecoins, I get the sense that you're a little bit more interested in another aspect of crypto, uh, tokenization. Yes. You're holding a big tokenization conference, yes. right? What's the draw there? Yeah. So the OCC is hosting a tokenization symposium on February 8th. Mark your calendars. Open to the public. Mm -hmm. Our keynote is going to be Hyun Song Shen from the BIS. I know you and, and Joe like... guest, yes. uh, one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Hyun is fantastic because he's got a very broad perspective across both you know, monetary policy, research, banking, and all things kind of crypto digital assets related. Because mm. at the BIS, they've got the innovation hub, and there's a lot of intersection between you know, his research and what they've been doing. In a word, there's been a growing divide between crypto and tokenization, mm -hmm. and tokenization of real world assets and liabilities. Mm. Most crypto is uh, not backed by anything, you know, Bitcoin, Ether, et cetera. Or if yes, or stable coins. Mm -hmm. Tokenization is, is a different game. You know, crypto's it's retail focused, and most of the interest in those coins is based on a hope for speculative gain. Tokenization is about solving a settlement problem. Mm -hmm. And this is really uh, for your listeners, you know, now we're in the plumbing of the system. And for those who know, like when you buy a share of stock, there's all this stuff that happens in the background. It involves multiple players. There's different handoffs. There's risk that gets transformed in different ways. It's complicated. And it's, it creates frictions and it creates costs. Mm -hmm. So if there's a way to make that settlement process better, why not? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, pro that's the promise of tokenization is that some of those risks and frictions can be addressed by basically taking messaging and settlement and combining that. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, can you explain that a little bit further? Because when I think, I think tokenization, I think like, I presume these are centralized databases. Yes. And then I think, well, 
what's the difference between a, a tokenized central database versus an Excel spreadsheet? Right. That's password protected. Yes. Like, what is the innovation here? Right. So this is a very important point. Blockchain. No, I didn't say blockchain. No, you didn't. Okay. And I think that's a very important distinction, right? I think there has been a little bit of a, how should I, what's the best way to put it? It's almost like a Rorschach test. Mm. You know, you say blockchain and some folks say, oh, that's the next big thing, whether they understand it or not. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's super efficient and fast. Right. It's not super efficient or fast. I mean, I remember the the years when we were going to put everything on the blockchain, yes. like groceries or like balsamic vinegar was going to be traceable on the blockchain to make sure it came from a specific region and things like that. Right. And so the design of public blockchains was there were certain you know uh, reasons for doing it. If you go back to the uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. Mm. That paper is pretty fascinating. It's a really interesting paper, and it makes the case for why you should do something that way. But to your point, Tracy, if you if the problem you're trying to solve is settlement frictions, you don't need that. And in fact, that probably just slows things down and gums things up. There are better ways to do that. Now, what's the what's the innovation? That's your question. What's mm -hmm. the innovation? It's basically taking messaging and settlement and combining it. That's different. Because right now, when you, again, we'll use the example, when you buy a share of stock, you're sending a message to buy you know, a share of Tesla or something. And then that message goes. And then a bunch of other things have to happen before that thing actually settles. Mm -hmm. Your money gets transferred. You get a share of stock. And that's held somewhere. And you have, everyone's fully aware that that has happened. With tokenization, you actually collapse a lot of those steps into into a single thing. Oh, I see. So multiple processes can exist as sort of like one thing exactly. that, that can then move through the system and exactly. be verified. Exactly. And you know, for again, for the for the for the banking nerds and the payment nerds out there, this is exciting. Now, it's hard to to tell this story to a retail mm. because it's hard to see that difference. Mm. But those costs and those frictions add up, and mm. there's quite a bit of time and effort that gets put into. Um, uh, identifying, addressing, assessing, you know, managing those risks and frictions. And so, you know, that in, in the, for the regulators and the central banks that have been kind of, you know, interested in this space, a lot of the, uh, the, the more of the excitement going forward is really in this kind of tokenization space rather than in kind of the retail space, which I think has um, been colored by a lot of the recent, you know, the, the crypto events. Financial services firms consider privacy in adopting Gen AI. Here are some thoughts from EY. And compared to other sectors, financial services is absolutely in a great place to manage the governance of AI, leveraging what they have. So operational risk management and the rigor that is around that is certainly how privacy has been built within the front line of most financial services organizations. That operational risk management rigor, as we know, requires assessment for new products, which is where privacy also has made certain it's part of that risk assessment. But it also requires a robust data governance framework and a lot of control at the data lifecycle management. So if we take those two aspects, we take the risk management aspect of new product management, the risk management aspect of data, we really have a nice layer to build upon and privacy, of course, is already integrated into that. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Well, since we're on the topic of financial innovation, and we are essentially at a fintech conference, we're at Money 2020, I want to ask you about a recent publication from the OCC. It's the interagency, it has a very catchy name, <laughs> the interagency guidance on third party relationships. Is that just basically a way of saying that you're worried about fintech partnerships with the banks? So uh, the guidance is broader than just that, hmm. but you're onto something. So let me, let me just zoom out for a second. Um, that guidance is geared towards banks' relationships with any vendors, hmm. any third parties. Okay. So payments as well and things like payments, that. Payments, yeah. but uh, a bunch of others as well. Hmm. And so you know, I, the, the story I like to tell is you know, way back in, in the beginning, <laughs> all of banking was done by banks. And so you can imagine like there's like a box hmm. and you can label it banks and banking. It was the same box. They did everything by themselves. And then over time, they had to rely on others to do certain things. And you know, probably the clearest example is like with the core processors, a lot of banks rely on the core processors to do certain processing, right. accounting, you know, reconciliations, et cetera. And so that's, now there's a dependency. And so as a regulator, you say, how do I ensure that everything that that bank does is safe, sound, and fair? Oh, I need to make sure that what they've done with that third party is up to snuff, mm. right? If it's slipshod, if, it, if it's done sloppily, mm. things can break. And then the bank will say, oh, that wasn't my fault. And they'll blame it on someone else. But at the end of the day, the bank itself is not going to be safe. We don't have a safe and sound system. So we want to make sure that that standard kind of carries through. It's almost like an extension of the bank, if you will. Okay, that's one-on-one. Now we fast forward to today. Now it's way more complicated. Because not only do you have lots of different kinds of vendors, like a lot of banks are now saying, hey, why stop with cores? We can do this with a lot of, because our comparative advantage is different than a lot of the technology that's out there. There's a whole bunch of different uh, use cases in terms of vendors. Now the tables are being turned. Now you've got some fintechs that are going to customers say, we will be the interface with you to take a deposit, make a loan, et cetera. But we need a bank to actually do that. <laughs> And so then they go to the bank. So in a sense, the bank is the, is the provider. That's why it's banking as, as a, a service. service. The bank is providing that service, but the dependency is flipped around. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, we used to talk about the disintermediation yes. of banks. And someone brought this up in our Discord recently. Um, apparently, I wrote an article, which I'd forgotten. But when there, were, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> when there was all that excitement about peer-to-peer -peer lending or direct lending, yeah. 
Wells Fargo apparently like put out a notice to its employees saying, please do not invest in peer-to-peer lending because they're a direct competitor to us, right? The whole idea was cut out the banks and people could make loans to each other. But now it's almost like disaggregation. It's We're yes. disaggregating the banks. We're sort of like taking pieces away or like there are new players, new companies that are tapping the banks for specific pieces. It's all very confusing. Well, it's confusing, but there's there's a logic to it. And so the analogy I like to draw is if you go back to pre-2008, mm. capital markets disintermediated banking. Oh. And it was really the, the lending and the deposit taking, right? Money funds took deposit taking and securitization took lending. By the way, this is how you get a financial journalist's attention when you say, here's a pre-2008 analogy. <laughs> I'm all ears. I'm like, yes, tell me. So if you drew a picture, and uh, one of my favorite pictures of this uh, Zoltan Pozar, who is another Odd Lots Another Odd Lots favorite. You know, he drew this map. His famous His map famous that he map. had pinned on the wall yes. of the New York Fed. More than, I mean, a bunch of, a bunch of folks had yeah. this map pinned. It was a gigantic map. And, uh, you know, again, for the nerds on the podcast, it was, a, it was basically T accounts. Hmm. Assets, liabilities, equity. But for different points of the system. And it, and it did what any good financial, follow the money. Right. You just follow the money. Right, how, it, how it's moving through right. the banking system and the shadow banking system right. at that time. And, so Zoltan, and then Adam Ashcraft was a co-author on the shadow banking paper, which basically said what banks used to do as lenders has now been broken up into six pieces hmm. or multiple pieces. And each piece is being done by a different group. So origination, remember New Century and Option One? Mm-hmm. They would do originations for mortgages. Warehouse lending, someone else would do warehouse lending. Distribution, someone else would do. So you, And you'd look at that and say, well... Does that make sense? Well, there's like a specialty there. Okay. And maybe they're particularly good at that. Mm. And there's economies of scale. Yeah, okay. they would argue efficiencies, right? right? efficiencies. And so you'd say that that logic in and of itself on a micro scale made sense. Mm. It's only when you zoomed out and you looked at the whole thing that you said, uh-oh, d- does this hold? And I think the real... Um, the, the insight from the, you know, the Posar Ashcraft work was all the Fed facilities matched up to each of those points. Hmm. So it's almost like the discount window was recreated for what had been disintermediated, Hmm. which is quite intuitive, actually. Hmm. So it gets back to this idea I have, which which I think others have talked about. It's like you've got the the conservation of of matter. Like risk is neither created nor destroyed. It just, it can transform and be chopped up and reallocated, but it all adds up to the same thing. Hmm. And so now we fast forward to today. And this is what's happening with payments. And if you talk to the payments companies, they say it doesn't make any sense to basically have a full system like front to back on this. Like you want to slice it up because different companies do a a different job on uh, things where they're better at it. So it's a very similar logic to the capital markets disintermediation. And again, each point makes sense when you do it one by one. But when you zoom out, what does it look like? And what's the risk reward? And who's bearing what risk? Well, okay. So just on this point, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into the 2008 analogy, but like one of the reasons it all went off the rails is because as you had all these different entities doing different things, there was kind of less and less return for all of them. And so the temptation was to start levering it up and try to amplify whatever yields you could get. Is is that the risk here? Or I guess talk to us concretely about the risks. And then secondly, is there enough return to actually go around? Because when I look at all these different little pieces, 
of banking services, it feels like there are so many players yeah. all kind of offering similar yeah. things. So I think that's a very, very valid question. And I know there are some uh, both fintech and bank analysts who have kind of looked into this and they're raising very similar questions. Like, is there enough to go around to support such a complex ecosystem? Right. But let's take a step back. Let's go back to banking as a service. With banking as a service, there's a spectrum. Mm. And at one end of the spectrum, you'll have what I, what I think of as something that's relatively simple. You've got a fintech, they've got a really cool app targeted at a population that they're really familiar with. They know it's going to work. And you've got a bank who traditionally doesn't know how to engage or to acquire that customer. So they partner together and they said, let's go get that customer together. And the bank says, that customer is my customer as much as it is yours. Mm. And they apply all the KYC and the compliance and all of the bells and whistles that they would provide to any other customer is applied to that customer. Very simple. Hard to scale, but relatively simple, straightforward. And then, then they, you know, what, what's the rev, rev split between those two? And they can you know, negotiate that. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got banks who then, who do they deal with? They're like, this is too complicated. We just want to provide the banking as a service. Mm. But we want to do it at scale. And lo and behold, there are some companies out there, this is what they do. So you know, often they're referred to as middleware. And they'll say, well, if you come to us, we have partnerships with lots of fintechs, and, we have part and they tell the fintechs, we have partnerships with lots of banks. It's funny, it's like there's wear all the way down, yes. right? It's yes. so funny. And so they go to them, and again, I don't want to paint all of them with a broad, there is a, there is a spectrum on this. Mm -hmm. And some of it is done in a way that I think can be safe, sound, and fair, and others, we've seen is that's not the case. And so in those instances, the bank has no idea who the real customer is. And the FinTech is like, well, look, we don't do compliance. We don't do KYC, someone else should handle that. Mm. And so we're right back to this picture of each slice is doing something slightly different. And you know, in my experience where that happens, unless there's a lot of clarity about who's bearing what responsibility, when bad things happen, everyone's pointing at each other. Mm. And that, that's a mess, and we don't want that. And so, you know, it's really important for us as this ecosystem evolves that we've got an eye on that and we guide it towards, you know, things that are healthy. Because there is good innovation out there that can be paired, um, that can be incorporated to the banking system. But we want to make sure that we don't end up with this kind of patchworky, you know, disintermediated, uh, disaggregated mess. Should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. Clearly, the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. So there is merit to exploring it, but at the same time, it is extremely important for organizations that are operating in regulated industries, such as ours, be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology. Great stuff. Thanks, Vidya. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Since you are the oldest banking regulator in the U.S., I want to ask you a little bit about the banking landscape post-SVB. Yep. And one thing that it feels to me that regulators are still sort of grappling with is what they want the banking system to look like. Yes. Do you want a sort of Canadian-style system where you have like six mega banks and everyone no. banks with them and they're highly, highly regulated? Or do you want the sort of vibrant, uh, it's a wonderful lifestyle banking system where there's local banks everywhere and everyone knows you and, and you know, your banker will personally extend you a loan and things like that. Where does the OCC fall on, on that debate? Do you have a vision yeah, of so what you want? I get this question a lot and it's half a loaf of a question. And the reason I say that is because it's just like you said, the, the instinct of folks who are asking, you know, who, are, who are contemplating this usually is to say, there's too many banks, like, you know, 4,000 is too many, what's the right number, or to compare to other countries. Mm. And what it's missing is banks exist to serve people and communities and the economy. Mm -hmm. So what's missing from the question is, well, who are the people, communities, and the economy that we're trying to support? The U.S. is very, very different than Canada. Right? We've got 330 million people. Um, we've got a very diverse economy, lots of different communities. And so that argues that we need to have an equally diverse banking system. So it's almost like, you know, regulators, we bank rate, love to think in terms of ratios. Mm -hmm. So the question of like, what should the banking system look like is the numerator. The denominator is what the economy looks like. And as long as we have a really diverse economy, we need a really diverse banking system because one size doesn't fit all. Like the large mega banks can't serve, don't want to serve mm -hmm. all those different uh, you know, I got in this uh, uh, debate yesterday with one of the participants about this long tail mm -hmm. of, of, of cases in the, in the U.S. economy. We have a very long tail of different communities, um, whether they're geographic or otherwise. And I think those are opportunities for banking. Mm. So then the question is, like, what is the best way to meet and empower all of them? That, to me, that's the real central question of merger policy. How do we set up merger policy um, so that we're approving, we're considering mergers that empower those communities. Oh, yes. So I believe there was some discussion of updating yes. the merger guidance post-SVB to sort of get at this question. Is that still on the table? Yes, absolutely. It's on the table and it's taking some time, but it's because we want and we need to put people, communities at the center of that analysis. Mm. You know, we've got statutory factors. We're kind of working through that and, we, and there's a lot of uh, detail around that. But as long as we have that long tail. And as long as the U.S. economy keeps growing, the, you know, the, the banking system has to grow with the U.S. economy. So if you were to just graph U.S. GDP and the size of the banking system, they, they pretty much match on top of each other. So as long as the U.S. economy keeps growing, 
and different parts of the economy grow, we want and need the banking system to grow with that. It's got to be safe, sound, and fair. And this is why I spend so much time on large banks, because there are going to be more and more complex large banks in the future. They need to be resilient, they need to be resolvable, mm. and they need to be manageable. And so we spend a lot of time like, let's articulate that so we don't get back into the pre-2008 pickle where you've got large banks that are neither resilient, resolvable, or manageable. Uh, that, that's not a place that we can afford to be. So since we're talking sort of existential uh, questions for the U.S. banking landscape, one of the things that's been on my mind, especially in the context of fintech and I guess payments, innovation, and things like that, there is still a difference in the U.S. between commerce and banking. And it's sort of like ne never the twain shall meet. Every right. once in a while, there's a rumor that like Walmart wants to start a bank or something, and then it gets shot down because it's not allowed in the U.S. But I, I kind of wonder, you know, post SVB, as banks continue to be disrupted by new digital technology, there are digital bank runs nowadays and things like that. Would there be room for a bank of Apple, for instance, or a bank of Amazon, or even a bank of Berkshire Hathaway. I know it's not a tech company, but, you know, these are companies with huge amounts of money. Maybe it would be nice to have a really well-capitalized bank as interest rates are going up. So this is um, probably you need an entire other podcast to talk about this. <laughs> it's a fascinating question. The history of the blending of banking and commerce is not a good one. Hmm. In generally, the history of... Wasn't Wells Fargo a stagecoach operation? <laughs> that seemed to work out okay. Where we have... I mean, if you go back to 2008, right? Like, yeah. if you'd say, like, the investment I'm being facetious, are, but you're right. But yes. there, we have lots and lots of examples where we said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we took these things and, like, you, know, you take the best of each, and it's like, you know, the chocolate and the peanut butter, you put them together, and we get something better. And in almost every single case I can think of, it's ended quite badly. Mm. And there's two problems that are associated with that, which we really have to be uh, careful of. One is there does become an unusually high concentration of power, market power, because they, they reinforce the banking and the commerce reinforce each other in a way that's quite unfair. Um, and that can have you know, a lot of negative impact. So that's one thing to, to be attentive to. And the other is the, the opportunities for problems go up because now how commerce goes impacts banking. And again, that's not a safety and sound. That's that's outside of the 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 zone of how safety and soundness uh, supervision uh, typically goes. So that's that's why we've had this separation. Uh, I do think today, going forward, this is going to become a bigger and bigger question to deal with because payments by itself is commerce. Mm. When you start to put it next to things that are adjacent to payments, lending, credit, deposits, savings, etc., that's banking. And this is, this is a very fluid, you know, rarely does a payments company say, we're just going to do payments and that's all we're going to do forever. At some point they say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just did a little bit of, you know, paid a little bit of yield on this, on this cash that's sitting with us? Wouldn't it be great if we did, did some lending? <laughs> it's a slippery slope to being a bank. Yes. It's happened to everyone. Yes. And so we want to be uh, really, really attentive to that. And look, if there's a way to do it, that's going to be safe, sound and fair without financial stability uh, concerns, I'm open. Like, let's talk about that. But history has proven that that's, that's tough to do. Mm. All right, Michael, Sue, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
right. Well, that was the live conversation recorded at Money 2020 with the OCC's Michael Sue. Joe, do you regret not going? Tracy, you're so capable as a host. <laughs> that is my conclusion. You're so capable as a host. You don't even need me. And I think next year we're going to be sending you on the road for a lot of solo trips. And I'll just hang back and tweet. You flatter me to make yourself <laughs> feel less guilty. That's but that's correct. OK. Um, I thought it was a super interesting conversation. Michael's a big All Thoughts fan, which was kind of so fun. And maybe we inspired him with the supply chain yeah. analogy. I hope so. Me too. I love it. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armand, Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot, and Kel Brooks at Kel Brooks. And thank you to our producer, Moses Andam. For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have a blog, a transcript, and a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. And check out the Odd Lots Discord, discord.gg slash oddlots. Chat with fellow listeners 24-7. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you want us both to go back to Las Vegas at some point, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. It's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.